Matt's a good guy, you know. I don't like to say this while he's here. I wish he'd leave, but he's, he's a good guy. The church that I used to attend some years back in Horsham uh, had, a, had a horrible habit. They'd come up with a new series and they'd go through it and whichever section of that nobody else felt they wanted to preach on was given to me. <laughs> the impossible ones, you know. Could you do a detailed exegesis of Psalm 119? You've got ten minutes. <laughs> this kind of thing. Then I came here and Ewan was a little bit kinder part of the time. Not all the time, but enough. And now we have a new lead pastor. And what does he do? He gives me Psalm 32. Lord, thank you for Matt. <laughs> it's, it's wonderful to be here. And it's wonderful to be able to share this psalm with you. I actually have very little that I need to say. Matt said it all. See, I told you he was great, wasn't he? But just in case you fell asleep while he was speaking, or your lunch is not ready yet, I'm still going to go through what I had planned. This song was probably written by King David, probably sometime after the prophet Nathan challenged him about Bathsheba and her husband Uriah the Hittite. I say probably because there are other theories as to exactly when it was written, but to my mind, that fits perfectly, and, and that's what I'm basing my thoughts on. For those who don't know the story of David and Bathsheba, we can fit you in later on if, you, if you'd like to know. Basically, David was the king. Bathsheba was married to somebody called Uriah. David had an affair with her. If we can call it an affair, he basically, as king, he didn't need to do an awful lot of wooing. Um, and then, to cover it up, he had her husband killed. So, you know, not, not a good story. And then, Sometime later, about a year later, Nathan the prophet confronted David and said, Oi, what you did is not right. You thought nobody knew about it, but actually God knew about it, and I know about it, and you need to sort it out. So that's kind of the background to the psalm. It's headed, if you look in your Bible, as a masculine. Thirteen psalms have got this wonderful name, and basically it just is a verb that means to give instructions or to make wise. And actually it can be used as a noun as well as the one who gives instructions and the one who makes you wise, basically the teacher. So this psalm, I believe, has two purposes in the mind of the one who wrote it. First of all, it's a song of praise to God, as all the psalms are. Wonderful. But it's also there to pass on the wisdom that David had gained through his own life and to say basically, look, I messed up. I had problems. I have learned some very, very hard lessons and I want to share with you the fruit of what I've learned so that you don't have to go through what I put myself through. So we can learn something from this and from David's experience. And he begins the psalm with these wonderful words, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, 
and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Now let me say this right from the outset. When it says he and man, it is not referring just to those of us who are masculine in gender. It is referring to males and females equally. Okay, it's just the way it was written, but when it says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, you could equally say, blessed is she whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Blessed is the woman to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Okay? So, so don't, ladies, don't feel left out on this. Um, you, you're very much part of it. Blessed. There is no single English word which accurately translates the Hebrew word blessed. It's a very profound word. And if you look in, for example, the Amplified Bible, it says, blessed, fortunate, prosperous, favoured by God. It's grasping for words to communicate what this is. Blessed, fortunate, prosperous, favoured by God is the one whose transgression is forgiven. Blessed, fortunate, prospered by God is the one to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. I heard a teacher some years back referring to the the Greek version of this word, blessed. And he pointed out that the Greek version comes from the same Greek root as an oasis in the desert. And he said, when you are blessed by God, it's like you've been in the desert and you come to this oasis. And the English word happy doesn't quite do it, does it? Oh, it's rather nice. Great, thank you. This is an exclamation. This is the psalmist saying, they haven't got words to tell you how blessed God wants you to be. Now, let's sum up that blessing in a single word. I heard that thought. If you can sum it up in a single word, why is he taking so long? Keep that thought to yourself. We don't want those thoughts around you. To sum it up in a single word is the word forgiveness. Forgiveness, and in the context of the psalm, forgiveness of guilt. Now I want to invite you to come on a journey with me. We're going to take a trip. It's a trip that many of you No, that's probably not true. That all of you have taken before. It's called a guilt trip. That feeling that comes when we know we've done something wrong. It doesn't need to be something serious, although it can be. But you know that feeling that hits you when you recognize that what you have done is wrong and you feel bad about it. And that guilt latches onto your heart. You may look all right on the outside, but something changes on the inside. And guilt messes with your feelings. Guilt messes with your mind. Guilt messes with your sleep. Guilt messes with your appetite. Guilt messes with your relationships. Guilt fills you with fear, fear of being found out, 
we feel alienated, we feel judged by God. And it's just plain lousy. And I don't need to convince you of this, because there's not one person here today who hasn't personally experienced it. And yes, I do include myself in that. Uh, I've experienced it too often. So what do we do? Well, what most of us do is we think, well, hmm, I'll just bury it. I'll just pretend it's not there. And I'll put a smile on the outside, and I'm fine. I can actually stand up in church, and I can sing, and I can praise, and I can say, oh, wonderful. And nobody will know how dead I am inside. Nobody will know the burden of guilt that I'm carrying around. And if I ignore it, eventually it will go away. Sorry, folks, it will not. Guilt has a way of gluing itself to you. You may forget about it for a while, and then suddenly when you least expect it, oh my goodness me, where did that come from? And it's back. And it's hammering at you. William Shakespeare. I'm going to be quoting lots of strange people today. Not that I'm saying he's strange. But William Shakespeare has been called the most brilliant therapist who never treated a patient. And he describes guilt in Macbeth as life's fitful fever. And anyone who's suffered the pangs of guilt knows that he nailed it when he said, out, damned spot, out. And no, he wasn't talking to his pet dog who he wanted to go in the garden. Out, damned spot, clear me, clean me, I need to be cleaned. Think back to the last time you had this feeling of guilt, how your body tightened up. It hangs around you. It's like a heavy weight on your shoulders. It causes stress inside of you. And it can genuinely make you sick. Physically sick. Emotionally sick. Spiritually sick. Guilt can and will destroy you. In fact, guilt is one of the prime weapons that our enemy the devil uses to neutralize us as Christians and to keep us from serving God. Guilt. There's some myths about guilt, you know. Some people feel that guilt is a valuable exercise from which you will learn and grow. We'll come back to that. Others have said that if you consume yourself with guilt, it'll teach you not to make the same mistake again. We'll come back to that. And others just say, look, put it behind you. Let the past be the past. Move on. What's happened has happened. You can't undo it. Oh, how true that is. 
I remember one particular occasion, and no, I am not going to tell you the background to it because it's none of your business. <laughs> but where I'd have given everything I owned and everything I had to be able to turn the clock back 24 hours and to do something differently. But I couldn't. I couldn't. All I could do was move forward from that point. You can't just forget it and move on. It will continue to follow you until it is dealt with. It will. Reflecting on past behavior is instructive. You can learn from it, and you should learn from it. But while that may help you for the future, it doesn't deal with the past. The guilt is still there. Imagine the person standing before the high court in this country and saying, Your Honour, I know I committed murder. But you know something, Your Honour? I've learned from that and I won't do it again. So may I leave? No. He may well have learned from it. But he's still guilty of the murder he committed before he learned from it. What about the thought that unending remorse for past mistakes will somehow help you never to make them again? Now, this may sound strange to you, but I'm speaking here as a psychologist, and I can tell you that this is psychologically 100% correct, scientifically validated, and shown by lots of research. It doesn't work that way. Excessive guilt and Meditating on it can actually have the opposite effect. It can make you feel absolved from guilt and more likely to do it again. Now that's a fact. It's illogical. But you know something? <laughs> We're illogical. People often look at those who harm themselves, self-harmers, people who cut themselves and do all sorts of horrible things to themselves. And, and I've heard it said so many times, oh, they're just looking for attention. I've heard it from doctors. I've heard it from every sort you can think of. But, you know, actually, physical pain can alleviate the feelings of guilt for a short period of time. It doesn't take the guilt away, it doesn't deal with it, but it makes you feel better at that point, just as alcohol would do or drugs would do. They ease the symptoms. I may have told the story before, but who cares? You never listen anyway. Many years ago, when I was living in South Africa, I was working for a company, and I lived about 10 miles away from where I worked, and in that part of South Africa, there was no public transport. And my car decided it didn't like me anymore. And it died on the way to work. And a garage came and took it away and towed it away and said, well, we'll get it sorted. And I said, well, I need it to get home tonight. Have you got any courtesy cars? No. But look, don't worry, it'll be all right. 
until about half an hour before I was due to finish work when I got a phone call saying, oh, uh, terribly sorry, uh, the parts haven't arrived yet. It, it should be okay by tomorrow afternoon. What the heck do I do now? And I went out to our receptionist, now please, folk, this is truthful. And she said to me, Ray, what's wrong? And I told her. She said, no problem. I'll give you a lift home. But you don't drive. Yes, I got my license about two weeks ago. And I've got a little second-hand car. I'll give you a lift home. I said, okay, thank you. And I got in the car with great um, confidence. Maybe not quite such great confidence, but I got in the car. And we started going along. And I saw a light flashing on her dashboard. And I said to her, have you seen that light? She said, yes. She said, sorry, I know it's distracting. I normally put some elastoplast over it so we don't see it. (laughs) I said, stop. That's telling you you've got no oil in the car. We're not going any further with that light flashing. You can't just cover it up. And it's the same with guilt. You can't just put an elastoplast over it and pretend it's not there. The light is flashing. Your mind is saying to you, that needs dealing with. Do it. I mentioned self-flagellation. Something that the Roman Catholic Church has practiced for, for many years. Now, please, I'm not saying anything against any church here. I'm just quoting facts. And and this report comes from the National Catholic Reporter. Okay? This is their official newspaper, one of their official newspapers. And it tells us how Pope John Paul II was even known to practice self-flagellation as a way to try and get rid of his own sins. How he used to beat himself with a belt and lie down spread eagle and sleep on a bare cement floor to try and remove his guilt and to draw himself closer to God. The thing that really bugged me as I read this article is they weren't saying that he did something wrong. They're saying what a wonderful man he was to be able to do so much to try and get rid of the guilt in his life. If a Pope can do it and be praised for doing it, why are we so surprised when young people try it? Yes, it is a call for attention. And that person needs attention. And that attention could end up saving their life. So, where does guilt come from? And it comes from the bad things I do. No, no, no. Where does guilt itself come from? Now, this may not be the answer you're expecting. But I don't care. You see, guilt is a gift from God. Guilt is a gift. You've just been telling me how bad guilt is and how it destroys and how it kills and how it makes me sick and now you say it's God's gift. Yeah. Yeah. When you feel guilt, it's due to something God gave us called a conscience. A measuring device that informs us when we do something wrong. A measuring device that helps us to choose between right and wrong. A measuring device that helps to keep us on the right road. 
But God wants your guilt to lead to repentance and forgiveness and peace. But as is so often the case, the devil has taken something that God created and twisted it and turned it around. And that is why many times in the Bible you'll find that the devil is referred to as the accuser of the brethren. The accuser of the brethren. The one who comes to you just as you're trying to get things right and says, call yourself a Christian? What about the one who, when you've heard somebody speaking here and saying the church needs a bit of help with this, that, or the next thing, you think, I'll volunteer. And they'll say, you? <laughs> How can God use someone like you? You hypocrite. Look at that in your pores. And he uses our guilt to destroy us. Now, I can't personally vouch for this, I tried to verify it and I've read all sorts of different views on it, but the consensus seems to be that there is more than just a grain of truth in this. You recognise him, don't you? That's Matt on a bad day. No, not quite. Sherlock Holmes. Arthur Conan Doyle, the writer of Sherlock Holmes, apparently once decided to play a prank on some of the most prominent men in London. And he sent them an anonymous telegram, which simply said, all is found, flee at once. And we are told, now it depends on which report on this you read, that somewhere in the region of over half of those who received that telegram had left the country by the next week. Many never to return. All is found. Flee at once. Guilt makes you live in constant fear of somebody finding out. But even if you're successful in fooling everyone else, you can never fool yourself. And you can never fool God. But the good news is that whilst the devil is the accuser of the brethren, God has defeated him. Okay? Listen to the words from Revelation. Then I heard a voice in heaven say, Now have come the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God, and the authority of his Messiah, for the accuser of our brothers and sisters, who accuses them before our God day and night, has been hurled down. He's been defeated because of what Jesus did on the cross. Guilt destroys, but God wants to heal, forgive, and restore. And that's why the psalm begins, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered, to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Now, just a teeny little word of warning for those of you in life groups. Those three words are going to be looked at in the life group to see what the difference is between transgression, sin, and iniquity. But we won't worry about that now. We haven't got time. Just thought I'd put you on alert. I have no idea when Catherine's going to send out the notes. I know it's not just yet because I haven't given them to her. But 
I know she's going to be sending them out, and we're going to be looking at that. But basically, all of them encompass different aspects of the same thing. They are ways of looking at how we have failed and let God down, and how guilt comes. And David says, you can be completely restored. Totally, completely. Like that rag that Matt was waving around. Every stain removed. No matter what you've done, no matter how big, there is forgiveness in God. How? Listen to the psalm. And I put it here from the Amplified Version. When I was silent about my sin, my body wasted away. Through my groaning all day long, for day and night, your hand of displeasure was heavy upon me. My energy, my vitality, my strength was drained away as with the burning heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not hide my wickedness. I said, I will confess all my transgression to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. You forgave the guilt of my sin. Admit that that's what you need. We need to come to a point where we realize we can't do it ourselves. There's no psychological trick that'll do it. There's no pill that'll take it away. The only way we can deal with sin is by being forgiven for that sin and being cleansed. And the only one who can forgive us and cleanse us is God because of what Jesus did. We need to start taking God at his word. We need to take an inventory. Lamentation says, let us examine our ways and test them. Psalm 139 says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. Point out anything in me that offends you and lead me along the path of eternal life. We need to take an inventory. We need to look at our lives and say, these are the things that need forgiving. Unfortunately, I think many times the way we pray is, Lord, forgive everything. Which is kind of like when we go to bed at night and we say, Lord, bless the whole world and everybody else. Amen. You know, it actually works better when you say, Lord, bless Aunt Sally because of this, that and that. And Lord, what about Uncle Henry? And what about... And we pray specifically. And God wants us to come and confess our sin to him, to acknowledge it. And as we do that, we are taking responsibility for it. We're no longer saying, oh, well, I slipped up, it really wasn't really my fault, you know, after all, I mean, the peer pressure was just too great, and if if I hadn't done that, people would have laughed at me, or or whatever the case may be. That's one of the reasons why many people never change, is because they always think that it's somebody else's fault, or maybe they change their job or their relationship, or go live somewhere else, but, you know, it doesn't work that way. Take an inventory, acknowledge your own responsibility so that when you come to God, you can say, Lord, these are the things that I feel guilty about and it's my fault, I blew it. Not easy. But maybe this will make it slightly easier. God already knows. (laughs) He's not going to be shocked. My goodness, did you really? No, he knows. He's waiting for you to acknowledge it. 
then ask God for his forgiveness. Again, it's maybe small to read because it's quite long, but it's from the Amplified Version, and I use the Amplified because it amplifies what is being said here. But it says in 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 to 10, if we say we have no sin, refusing to admit that we are sinners, we delude ourselves and the truth is not in us. And his word does not live in our hearts. That doesn't sound too good, does it? But if we freely admit that we have sinned and we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and true to his own nature and promises and he will forgive our sins and he will cleanse us continually from all unrighteousness, from our wrongdoing, from everything that is not in conformity with his will and purpose. If we say we have not sinned, refusing to admit the act of sin, we make God out to be a liar by contradicting him. And his word is not in us. You want something to feel guilty about? How about telling God he's a liar? No, agree with God. The word confess means to agree with God. Come to God and say, you know something, God? I've done these things, I was responsible for them, and you are right. It was my fault, and I'm sorry, and I need forgiveness. Now, let's, let's just clarify, because people sometimes get a little confused. Don't worry, we won't be much longer. Another hour or so, and we'll be done. <laughs> but the three things that John is not saying in this passage. He's not saying you have to beg for forgiveness. God is more ready to forgive you than you are to ask him. God doesn't say you've got to bargain. You don't have to make promises in order to receive forgiveness. Because of the cross, it is a free gift from God. You don't have to bribe God. Well, Lord, if you forgive me, I'll put an extra 10p in the offering once a month. I'll go to church. I'll serve coffee on a Sunday morning. I'll even smile to that person I don't like. No, you don't have to bargain. Payment has been made on your behalf. No begging, no bargaining, no bribing. What John is saying is believe that what God has said is what God means. Which leads us to confession. That verse in Psalm 32, verse 5 says, Then I acknowledge my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. I confessed, you forgave. Much like it was saying a few minutes ago in John. If we freely admit that we have sinned and confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us. When I confess, when I agree with God, God does it. And the cross makes that possible. It means he's justified in forgiving me because the price has been paid. That Greek word confess means to say the same. I need to say the same things about the things on my list that God says about them. And I need to say, God, you're right. I'm wrong. I'm sorry. I accept your forgiveness. Now, confession causes confusion. So I just want to take two minutes to, to touch on that very, very briefly. 
Okay? If the sin is against God, confess it to God and make it right with God. If the sin is against some other person, confess it to God and do your best to make it right with the other person. And if the sin is against a group of people, then confess it to God and do your best to make it right with that group of people. But remember this. Whether the other person forgives you or not has nothing to do with whether God forgives you. If the other person will not forgive you, that's their problem and God will deal with them about that. Your problem is that God wants you to admit it, confess it, and to seek his forgiveness. And then to thank him for giving it. You may not be able to undo what you did. David couldn't bring Uriah the Hittite back to life. But he confessed it and God forgave. God wants to set you free. And when he does, he promises this. I will instruct you and teach you in the ways that you should go. I will counsel you with my loving eye upon you. In other words, I've cleansed it, I've dealt with it, and now I'll lead you from here onwards. And when you start to stray, you'll get that twinge of guilt. (laughs) And you say, okay, thank you, Lord, and come back. And that's why the psalm ends with the wonderful promise. Many, oh, you can't even read that. I'll read it. Many are the woes of the wicked, but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds those who trust in him. Rejoice and be glad. So I end with a simple comment. The choice is yours. You can go from here bound by guilt, or set free by Christ. The choice is yours. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that you love me so much, that you love each one of us so much, that you willingly paid the price for my sin, for our sin. Thank you, God, that as much as I long for complete cleansing and forgiveness, you long even more to give it. Thank you, God, that while I can't just bury my head in the sand and pretend it never happened, Lord, you make it as if it hadn't happened because Jesus takes it upon himself. God, I pray that you'll speak to each and every one of us here today. We've been harboring that feeling of guilt, that burden, that heavy weight. Help us, Lord, to do what you want us to do, to take an inventory, to acknowledge our responsibility, to confess it to you, and to receive your forgiveness. And Lord, if you want us to speak with somebody about it or to be prayed with by somebody, give us the courage to go and speak to them too. We commit ourselves to you, Lord, in Jesus' name.
Amen.